0: Aloha, I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. Welcome to The Body Show. Each week we talk about health and fitness, but none of what we discuss replaces a visit to your own primary care provider. Pain medicine. If you've ever taken a pill of Vicodin or Oxycodone, Tylenol number 3 with codeine or others, and did it help treat the pain? In most cases it does, but when does taking a pain medicine turn into an addiction problem? What should doctors like myself be telling people about the precautions with pain pills? Well, Claire Santos is here. She is a registered nurse, and she's a health communications expert and patient advocate with over 35 years of experience, and she's right here in the studio. You know, earlier this year, she shared her experience with losing her sister to addiction, and now she's become a strong advocate for more information given to everyone about the good and the bad of pain pills. She's hoping to educate all of us about the dangers that lurk behind every prescription for pills that can potentially be addictive and, in some cases, life-threatening when used correctly. And Today, we're going to talk about how people can coordinate their care and figure out ways to help be their own advocate when it comes to pain medicine or really any type of medical treatment. Because as we move closer to this patient-centered medical home, and I'm going to let Claire define that in just a minute, we're getting to the point where patients, people, yourselves, are the boss, not me. And we're going to talk about how that role has changed and why that's so important, not just with pain medicine, but with every medical condition. So I put a lot on your plate there, Claire. Welcome to The Body Show.
1: Thanks so much for having me back, Dr.
0: Kozak. So let's talk a little bit about pain medicine. You know, we talked earlier in the year about the unfortunate tragedy that you experienced in your own family. And one of the things that came out of that discussion that I wanted to have you back to talk more about is the things that people are not told. So for anybody who's ever gotten a prescription of, you know, and how often do I give this cough medicine with codeine, um, Vicodin or hydrocodone, if you've ever had a surgery and gotten pain medicine after your surgery, there's a lot of education that's supposed to take place. And it seems to me like we're missing something we're not doing what we should to help people understand about the good and the bad of these medicines in your experience what's your thoughts do you think we're doing enough here are we not and if not what are we missing i do feel that
1: something's missing and it seems to be in the area of provider education we have a lot of factors at play when a patient comes in in pain or with a terrible cough something requiring an opiate or opioid. The physician does not want their patient to be in pain and writes the prescription. Somehow it gets lost in the conversation. You're under the influence. You should not be driving. Perhaps you shouldn't be going to work if you're in a zero-tolerance workplace. You shouldn't be signing contracts. You're kind of impaired when you're taking narcotics. What I found when I've casually polled physicians that I know is they don't really have education and training in pain management or patient education with pain management. So we have a bit of a gap there, and I think that's part of what's leading to these recurrent prescriptions every 30 days until the person is addicted to their medication.
0: Well, and it sounds like, you know, and even the last time we spoke, you said, hey, somebody has to tell me if I take Cough medicine with codeine. Don't drive. Now, presumably, if it says take it at night, hopefully you're not doing a night owl drive to, you know, wherever you're headed. But who knows? Some people take it during the day. And if they're never told this could impair you, if they're not given information about how they should be careful, like you said, if, if you're signing contracts or you're doing something that requires your mind to be alert mentally and you're taking a medicine that takes away that level of alertness, That's a problem. So provider education. In other words, doctors telling people, don't do the following with this medication. Okay. And the pharmacies, they do play a role here and very often give people a very large printout of several pages of all the possible side effects of their medicine. And boy, you read it, you get scared, you never want to take it if you read it. If you read it and if you can understand what it says and if you're in any frame of
1: mind to read all those pages. That's true. If you're in pain. Yeah. You're probably
0: not by definition.
1: So there's not a person anymore sitting down with you describing what you may feel like on this medication and what things you should and shouldn't do. Is anyone adequately looking at what medications you're already on to advise you not to combine some of them? They may have an as-needed sleeping pill, and then you're going to give them oxycodone. You'd like people to wake up. Yeah.
0: And that's not guaranteed when you combine certain prescriptions together. Absolutely. Like maybe those two. Okay. So so a real lack of education. Now, I'd be curious for for those people who are tuning in. Have you ever had an experience with pain medicine that surprised you? Has anything ever happened when you've taken it? I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here in the studio with Claire Santos, and we'd like to hear from you. You can give us a holler at 941-3689, toll-free neighbor islands eight seven seven nine four one three six eight nine what we 're talking about is if you 've ever had an experience with a pain medicine that surprised you that nobody warned you about, and what was the side effect you know now, in a very if you would take this all the way down the route, you could get addicted to pain medicine, and then that has this whole other element of what happens when you get addicted to pills, how do you keep getting them, and this whole idea of coordinating efforts so that we can try and prevent this but So let's talk about a little scenario. So you walk out of your doctor's office, you get a pain medicine. What do you expect them to tell you, first of all? Let's just pretend you just came out of the office and you got yourself some hydrocodone. You threw your back out, you did something to your body, you needed to take some pain medicine while you're in recovery. What do you expect to hear as a patient from your doctor regarding that medicine?
1: And this is an interest... I want to give a little bit of history here because it used to be you'd see your doctor and there was a nurse outside. The nurse would give that education. They They would have a paper to give the patient and read over it with them because there is a health literacy component here. And if you give someone... Um, a help sheet that they can't understand, they can't read, it's of no value. So the nurse would go over these things and provide that level of education. So the physician did some, the nurse did the rest, the, the nurse had that one-to-one contact. That model is gone now. There's not a nurse in the physician's office anymore. Right. It's a, it's There's medical, medical assistance, And they don't have that skill set for patient education. Um so now it, it falls on the physician, and I don't think anyone told the physician. So <laughs>
0: Nobody told us, hey, you got another job to do, but okay, listen up, you got another job to do. Yeah. Okay.
1: So, you know, the physician would, would have to go over all the side effects in plain English. So And, you know, a language the patient understands, that you may feel drowsy, you may feel dizzy, you shouldn't drive a car, you shouldn't... Um, uh, operate heavy machinery, perhaps you don 't you can 't go to work when you take this medication um, there are There are many factors involved you may be you may become nauseated you may have more severe side effects. When should you call the
0: doctor um, so you would expect to hear those things from the doctor 's office yes okay now let 's say you go to the pharmacy you pick up your prescription. What is your expectation from the pharmacy? The pharmacy also has now technicians who are handing out the actual prescription. Sure, and the pharmacists are behind, in, yeah. they're filling things, they're not necessarily doing the right up front. Okay, correct. So you have a technician
1: at the desk. Sometimes the pharmacists, pharmacists have wanted to be more involved in healthcare lately in the patient's actual situation. You may have a pharmacist step out from behind the counter and talk with you about it. Most times, however, you just get pages and pages of explanation and lots of stickers on the side of your Yeah, bottle. you can barely
0: read the instructions. <laughs> yeah. You've got all these stickers and they're like folded off and flagged and all this kind of stuff. You're feeling okay.
1: sick. You're in pain. You
0: I honestly need the one-to-one interaction on the education. If you're the one picking up the medicine, you might have a spouse or a friend or a significant other or somebody else getting your pills. So the technician says, do you have any questions? And you're like, well, I'm not taking them. I don't have any questions. I'll just bring all the papers home to whoever. So so there's that other element too.
1: Yeah. And that's another place where the checks and balances may fail is are you using the same pharmacy because someone needs to look at your drug interactions. That's very, very important.
0: So if you pick up one medicine here and you get four from the mainland mail order, they may not be aware of that. Correct. Okay. So your expectation would be that the pharmacist or the tech or somebody would do something to indicate to you, hey, this is a strong pain medicine. There are some potential addictive potentials to this and some other precautions. And these are the areas that we're not seeing
1: you know you you do bring up another really good point is explaining right up front to the patient that this is potentially
0: addicting without terrifying the patient because you want sure. to still treat the pain right um It scared us. You know, the recent thing that happened this past October is that hydrocodone, which is most people know of as Vicodin, became a Schedule 2. It used to be Schedule 3. And what these schedules mean is, you know, realistically, how much of it can you write for a patient? Do they need to bring the prescription? Can refills be done electronically, faxed or phoned in? And it changed a lot of that parameter. And it scared us. I mean, it made a lot of my colleagues just say, I don't prescribe that anymore. I just don't give it. They have to use something else. So there's also this sense of discrimination for those people who need strong pain medicine.
1: And for some people, they've been in chronic pain. This is whatever drug it is, is what works for them when they have an acute episode. All of a sudden, they can't get it. That was a huge issue. Right.
0: Because we got scared. So, and the patient suffered. And they got scared, yeah. too. Let's talk to a couple of people. We have a caller on the line. We have Sam on the phone from Kalihi. Sam, welcome to The Body Show.
2: Uh, yes, yeah, thanks for taking the call. Thanks for yeah, calling us. I was us. recently told by uh, my PCP that um, I couldn't be a patient of his anymore because he would not prescribe the uh, pain medication that I needed for my chronic uh, debilitating condition. Uh, it's called dish disease, which is uh, they say is no cure for uh, or is there any medication to treat it, D-I-S-H, not the disc, but DISH, like Forrester's disease. And uh, from what I'm understanding, quite a few people are coming down with this condition now, and it used to be a condition that people get when they're 90 years old or older. And um, I got this uh, 10 years ago, and it's just now being diagnosed by the medical community here in Hawaii. I started off with Tramadol, and it was, oh, this is over the past two years, Tramadol, then I went to Vicodin, Percocet, now I'm on morphine, uh with cyclobenzaprine, steroids and Lyrica, and my PCP says that uh, I'm going to have to find someone else because he will not uh write a prescription for these uh for me to take this, these these medications even though uh, I need it in order to uh function each day.
0: Well, let me ask you a question, Sam. The person that, that you that you're seeing, were they writing these medicines before?
2: Uh, no, they weren't. I was okay. involved in a a, a um, work related injury, and gotcha.
0: Okay, so you were seeing someone other than your PCP, and yeah. then your work situation is over, and you yeah. come back to your PCP, and they go, "Whoa, I can't and prescribe this." when I went to these. my
2: PCP in the beginning before this happened, I told my PCP I wanted him to treat me because I didn't want to take any pain medication. As in my files, he realized that I will always refuse any pain medication. And uh, now I'm addicted to the stuff and I have to get to rehab in order to get off. But how I'm going to get off because I need this to function each day. Um, being in this condition that's uh, no cure for now. So
0: You got it, downhill. Sam. You're stuck. You're stuck in a very tight spot. And, yeah. you know, that's that's got to be really difficult, Claire, because he, you know, Sam said, I don't want to be on a lot of pain medicine. And now you've got Boy, you've got the morphine, you've got the lyrica, you've got the cyclobenzaprine, you've 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 got a whole slew of pain medicine that I think was probably initially given with all good intent to treat symptoms, but now you're stuck. And so, you know, the good news is, I think it's good news that we have some excellent pain management doctors here in the state. The the bad news is sometimes it's hard to get in to see them, but you know, I kind of understand your PCP's thought, which is, oh, my God, what am I going to do? This guy's on a lot of medicine. I don't know how to get him off of it. And and then here's you saying, I got to function. You know, I've got to be able to get up every day, get to work, get around, do my own activities in order to survive. So, you know, I'm curious, Claire, do you think we have, like, your experience with primary care providers, and I say this meaning doctors, nurse practitioners, whoever is the primary care provider. Do you do you feel as though we are able to prescribe strong narcotic medicine or should we have more providers that are chronic pain specialists. Because Sam, that sounds like the route you've got to go. You know, you've got to find somebody who's an expert who can work with you, not even in a rehab situation, but just in an office setting to help lower your doses and find other alternatives for you so that you can still live a productive life, but not feel like you're stuck on medicine. Uh, And that's the thing, Sam. Uh, One question without
1: names. Did your PCP refer you to anyone?
2: Uh, no, it was referred by the employer, um, but now I want to get back to my PCP. He says he hates to lose the business, but he just can't in a position of uh, writing these prescriptions for me. When I do go to the emergency room, what they do is administer the morphine through the IV. Um, you know, it's just a shame that I'm I'm in this condition at, at I feel really a young is. age with this uh, disease. But it is stated that there's no cure for the disease, nor any medication to treat it. Uh, to just take the pain medication and try to live the best way you can. However, this is 18 hours of sleep for me on these medications. And in addition to my diabetic condition, uh, you know, I take some other medication. So the constipation and the things like that that really bother me because, you um, know, I just can't function. And I just can't function the way I used to uh, knowing that I have to take these medications. And I am going the route of the management uh, clinic, and so far, the pain management clinic can only take it a step at a time. And they also do not want to uh, prescribe these medications, uh, but they're stuck, too. Like I said, I'm stuck in this position. You know, what do I do? Um, i than pulling my hair out each day, and people just don't understand the chronic issue that it's forever, and it doesn't look like I'm sick, but I'm sick, suffering with this uh, internally. And by my just personal desire to never want to take the pain medication, it's uh, emotionally troubling for me now that I have to take it. And I know that I'm addicted to it because if I skip a dose, I start to feel uh, the withdrawals. And I explained that to the doctor and he said, yeah, those are withdrawal symptoms because your body is asking for uh, the medication knowing that the pain is about to come about. So the pain is not being alleviated. I mean, it is, I guess, with the medication. But the problem will never be um, eliminated. You know, and I hate to think that, well, now I'm in this condition the rest of my life with pain medication. But uh, I guess that's the story that I have, you know.
0: Well, Sam, and I appreciate you calling in, telling us your story. The one part of it that I think is so admirable on your part is the fact that, you've taken the step to see a pain specialist. And yes, they're taking it one step at a time, but that's probably the safest way to go for you. And I'm just glad you're doing that because, really, I would hope that your PCP or your work comp specialty specialty doctor had given you a list of folks you could see who can help manage that because you need an expert. This is something that if you really want to get off of the medicine, it may be possible, but you do have to take it one step at a time. And, you know, you brought up a really good point. And, Claire, I think another excellent part of what Sam said is he doesn't look sick. And that's actually part of the difficulty is that – Pain is such a personal experience. Right. And you know you may come see a doctor and have a smile on your face and trying your best to hold it together and literally can't. And you can also come and, and look perfectly normal and yet still be on a lot of medication. And if you don't have that medicine, that appearance can be deceiving. I think that happens to a lot of folks is that they sort of get, you look too good to be in pain, so you can't need all this medicine. That's it's true. almost like a discrimination effect. It is. And it does happen.
1: Um, you can look at a person, they look fine. We're not going to believe you're in pain. If someone looks like they're over-dramatizing pain, we try to say that pain is a subjective symptom and we have to believe what the patient says. But in the back of our mind, we're
0: thinking. "We," I mean, right. That's We're taught to observe. Yeah, And so, of course, we're going to. But, you know, I think we've created this huge portion of people who who need extra services, and someone like Sam needs a specialist to really help him b- bring down those doses of medication slowly, but not in a way that he's suffering. And my wish for you, Sam, and I appreciate you calling and sharing your your experience is that you do work closely with your pain management doctor and find a way to get off of some of those medicines giving you all those side effects. I don't know how you can survive if you're sleeping 18 hours a day. I mean, it just it just doesn't seem to be possible. So So here we are wishing you expertise with a pain specialist to really help get off of some of those medications. Now, we have John on the phone patiently waiting from Kona. John, welcome to the—all right. We have Jim on the line. I'm sorry. So, Jim, welcome to The Body Show.
3: Hi. um, I just wanted to call in and say that um, given the direction that um, American medicine has gone over the last 25 years, I think it's increasingly important for the patient to take responsibility— himself or herself preaching to the choir pardon me
0: preaching to the choir jim we were just going to talk about patient self-advocacy tell me a little bit more about your thoughts
3: well when i go to the doctor and they suggest a medication i ask them point blank what are the side effects what can i expect from this are there any dangers that you can share with me and i sit there until i am satisfied and then when i go to the pharmacy I go to Long's Pharmacy in Waimea on the Big Island, and they are always, always willing to come out behind the counter, talk to me, because I ask them the same question to corroborate what I heard from the, in the physician's office. And I think that it's very important for uh, patients to take responsibility for their own health. If you just go in and blindly trust, um, you get what you get.
0: Preaching to the choir, Jim, you have taken the reins of the next step of our conversation. So I want to absolutely, absolutely say we echo everything you're saying. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here in the studio with Nurse Claire Santos, who is a health communicator and patient advocate. And when we come back, we're going to talk more about Jim's idea of self-advocacy. What can you do? And how can you make sure that you get the most out of your appointment so that you really do understand what medications you're taking and why you're taking them and make sure that you're in charge? Because, you know, truthfully, with a patient centered medical home, you are the boss now. And with that, comes a lot more responsibility than anybody might be aware of. We'll be right back after this quick break. Don't forget to join us, 941-3689, Neighbor Islands, 877-941-3689, toll free. We want to get your information about your story and hear about how pain medicine and other medications and advocacy may be something that you're really good at or want to learn more about. We'll be right back after this quick break. Stay with us.
3: A man flies bombing missions in World War II and then confronts the question of what to do with the rest of his life.
0: The
1: truth was there was nothing else he wanted to do, could do. Flying on bombing raids had become him, who he was.
3: That man is the main character in Kate Atkinson's new novel, which we'll discuss on the Morning Edition Book Club on the next Morning Edition from NPR News.
4: Weekday mornings from 5 to 8.30 on HPR One.
3: When the people in Central Park learned that one of the toy sailboats was being steered by a mouse in a sailor suit, they all came running.
4: Stuart Little goes sailing. This week on Selected Shorts from PRI, Public Radio International.
2: Tuesday at 5 p.m. following Travel with Rick Steves. Support for The Body Show comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk show programming. Mahalo to contributors Bush Consulting, Sacred Hearts Academy, and Hawaii Supply.
0: Welcome back to The Body Show. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here in the studio with Claire Santos. She is a nurse with over 35 years' experience, health communicator, patient advocate. And right before the break, we were hearing from Jim from the Big Island talking about how people need to advocate for themselves to make sure that they understand what medicines they're taking and why. And then we had John from Kona, he was on the line earlier and he said, you know, everybody has a different experience with pain medicine and he's on medication but still is very active and out in the community and doing all the things that he normally does, going to work, etc. And, you know, it gets back to everybody having their own personal experience with medication and not everybody has the same experience. And some people tolerate medicines well. And some people like Sam who called from Kalihi have a lot of side effects. And and yet it comes down to people understanding why they're on medicine, what it's for, and how important it is to take it as instructed. Now, Claire, you've had a lot of experience as a patient advocate. You've done this as your job. What does that role mean to you? And how does that relate to people getting prescriptions that may or may not be addictive and may have different side effects, how can patients take control of those situations and try and make sure that nothing gets missed?
1: Well, patient advocacy is all about informed decision-making by the patient. Now, with Patient-Centered Medical Home, we've kind of heaped this role onto the patient. You're the boss. You're the decision-maker.
0: Yeah. We didn't tell them. We didn't tell them. We didn't train them. We didn't tell the doctors either. Hey,
1: we didn't send them to college. Right. Right. There you go. You're in charge. It's your body. You make the decisions, which I wholeheartedly support. But advocacy assistance may well be needed. And that can come from so many places. The person can, if they're savvy enough, get online and investigate their diagnosis, investigate possible treatments. And then go in and see the doctor and have, or the nurse practitioner and and have that conversation. Other people lead, need a little more support, and maybe we'll take a family member to the appointment with them. And have that person take notes of what the, the doctor said. I'll just say doctor for ease of use today. Um, and to help them with questions, prepare them in advance or have questions there. To help that person get all the information they need in the way they understand the information so that they can sit there and say, okay, I choose this instead, Dr. Kozak. That's everything. Um, a person should be in charge of their own situation.
0: Kind of like what Jim said. You know, he said he goes to Longs yeah. on the Big Island in Waimea, and he asked the doctor about side effects. He asked the pharmacist about side effects. I bet he goes home and looks them up and looks for side effects, really just to understand what am I taking, why am I taking it, what is it for, and what can I expect? And so to just take that level of control. Yes. To do it yourself.
1: Well, each person owns their body, correct?
0: So That's true. Should, they... You can't you can't give it to somebody else. I mean, I guess you could, <laughs> but not while you're alive. The doctor um,
1: doesn't own their body. The, the doctor yeah. in in today's healthcare The doctor collaborates with the patient. The doctor's the trusted advisor who presents options of care, options. uh, Why are you taking these tests? You know, there was a time when the doctor would say, go to the lab and have these tests done, and the patient had no idea what was going on.
0: No, that doctor. still happens. I'll tell you.
3: <laughs> I see a said? lot of
0: folks who say, "Yeah, my doctor so and so told me to take all these tests. I don't know what it's for. Something I'm not sure." So you're right; it still happens. But that kind of what what would be ter- determined sort of paternalistic attitude has changed Absolutely. a bit. Yeah. And I enjoy when patients ask me, when people say to me, "Why am I taking this medicine? What are my alternatives?" What else could I do instead of? Is this medicine forever? Is it for short term? You know, I'm a big fan of of look it up. Bring in the weirdest thing you found on the internet so that we can look at it together and I can tell you totally true or don't go to that website again. Because, you know, we've talked before about... yeah. Getting good information, and good information comes not just from your PCP, not just from your pharmacist, but it can come from sites like the Mayo Clinic website, John Hopkins website, Massachusetts General. Cleveland. Cleveland Clinic website. They've got some great patient portals where you can get some top quality information. And you know it's top quality because it's coming from a major medical center, and they're not trying to sell you stuff. That's the other thing that that worries me. You know, when you go on, even sometimes people will come up with WebMD or some of the other sites that sounds really good. But when they're trying to sell you some supplement that's only from their website or sell you some service that's just from them, I get a little suspicious, maybe too much so. But but there are places you can get good information.
1: You have to look for bona fide information, genuine information. And the closest closest we can do are the sites you just mentioned, Mayo, Johns Hopkins, Cleveland, etc., Um to refer patients to. But you know, once you Google something, you just get so many answers. And you can't help but look at all these
0: other sites. And it's scary, though. It's like, you know, your chest pain could be something growing inside your head. And you're like, Oh, no, what? So you're right, you really have to direct people. But part of that is, is talking with your doctor, talking with your PCP, nurse practitioner, whomever it is to really make sure that you understand what's what's really going on. Now, we've got a couple more callers. I want to talk to John from Honolulu. John, welcome to The Body Show.
2: Yeah, thank you for taking my call.
0: Thanks for calling us. What, what are your thoughts on pain medicine and patient advocacy?
2: Okay, basically what I will do is when I feel the pain coming up again, I'm on oxycodone, 5-milligram tablets, and I've also just been uh, issued morphine of 15 milligrams. Uh, Very seldom gets to the morphine stage, thank you. My goodness. Yeah. But the oxycodone has been a friend of mine for about 12 years now. And I've also been informed as if I didn't know it. Uh, When I turned my head some months ago that started up, I sound like a bowl of Rice Krispies. It's just snap crack and so on and so forth.
5: So you've
0: got some really bad neck troubles. Is that what you're taking the medicine for?
2: Uh, No, I'm taking the medicine for the knee. i got staphus and cocculus in the knee, and it ate away the cartilage. So I'm doing uh, like 30% cartilage, and the rest of it's bone-on-bone.
0: So you've got this knee problem, so you're taking some strong medication there, John. I'm curious, how does the oxycodone affect you? Do you notice any changes in your behavior or your alertness when you take it?
2: Uh, no, not really. And that gets uh, along
0: to what John from Kona had called earlier and and couldn't hold on the line, but he said is he feels, you know, he's taken medicine for so long, he's developed... A tolerance and can still be physically active and out there doing things. And you, since you said it's been your friend for 12 years, you know, you probably have developed quite a tolerance to that particular medicine. So you said before you get to that level where you need the stronger medicine, you intervene with the prescription you've been given. Is that right? Correct. And that serves you well? That helps take care of it? Keeps it below uh, that
2: threshold where you need more medicine? 30 to 45 minutes, I'm back online, yep. Yeah?
0: Okay, that's great. And that but, is taking charge of your own care. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, uh, and I, I think it's good that you're given options. Here's what to do when you have this level of pain. Here's what to do when it accelerates. Here's what to do if it gets even worse. So it sounds like you've really established a good rapport with your, with your prescribing physician that really yes. they figured out a way to help work with you to make your life possible and make it functional even on strong medicine.
2: Very true. Very true. Very good doctor, and I appreciate his services greatly.
0: Excellent. Well, John, I think that's fabulous. Thanks so much for sharing your story with us so that we can hear some success stories. You know, sometimes we get so worried about prescribing certain medications, but we forget for some folks this is their lifeline. This is what they need to have, and this is when once they've established that rapport and they know how to work within that parameter of what their doctor said, it works really well. So good job, John. I think I think it's good to hear success stories, Claire. We don't hear enough of those. Yeah, congratulations, especially for being in charge of yourself. Absolutely. Let's talk with Carla from Kona. Carla, welcome to The Body Show.
4: Hi there. Um, yep, um, Carla, we we hear yeah. you. Okay, um, what I wanted to ask is I've been told that uh, uric acid is one of the things that causes inflammation in the body, the joint system. Muscles and everything. I wanted to find out if, um, if doing something that, um, that, um, like lemon water, drinking lemon water apple cider vinegar, if it actually, um, if it helps if get rid of the uric acid, because I've been told that there are other things like celery seed and water. Also, is a huge anti-inflammatory, and it gets rid of uric acid in the system.
0: Well, you know, Carla, you brought up some interesting points, and and what I want to do is Just go through that just a little bit. Uric acid is something that is, it's an amino acid. It's a byproduct of protein breakdown, and it's implicated in inflammation. And in some people, they're unfortunate enough to get gout, which is something I bet a lot of folks have heard about, unfortunately, probably experienced. And gout is a condition where those uric acid crystals build up in a joint, and it has to do with a genetic predisposition to not being able to get rid of the uric acid in the body. So for those people who get gout, there's a variety of different treatments. Anti-inflammatories are the mainstay, but some people think that if you can try and reverse sort of the, the, the pH of what's going on in your blood, you might be able to reverse the crystallization. So when you talk about things like lemon water and apple cider vinegar and some other things like tart cherry juice are some of the alternative medicine treatments for people who have elevated uric acid. Now, The majority of these treatments are looked at in people who actually have gout because they have sort of a severe case of having this elevated uric acid. Um, and one of the sites and one of the books that actually I've been really interested in looking at recently is go to the Mayo Clinic website and take a look at uric acid. Just put that in there as a, as a, as a, the search engine for the Mayo Clinic. Because they have a whole section and they have a whole book they put out on alternative health treatments, which has to do with some of the things you hear about, like lemon water and apple cider vinegar and tart cherry juice and some of these sort of what we would consider complementary medicine practices, sometimes having to do with nutrition and things. And these particular types of substances actually can have an effect. They can counteract the effect of the uric acid. They can reduce some levels of inflammation. But you have to be careful about how much and what you're taking it for and and where you're getting it from. And I would, I would always defer back to the Mayo Clinic Alternative Health book or go to their website because in each one of their medical conditions, they have a whole section that talks about that because uric acid, and if it causes gout, can cause a lot of pain, and if it's just elevated in the body, there may be some inflammation and destruction going on that needs to be addressed, and this is one way that you can do that. Now, now talking about some of alternative and complementary medicine, we did have a caller who wanted to know something very interesting. Um, For those people who are defined addicts or alcoholics and they're going through surgery and they have to go through a recovery, how can they safely use pain medicine and are there other alternatives? And, Clara, this is a real interesting question because, you know, you've worked as a nurse for many years. And for somebody who declares themselves, hey, listen, I've been an alcoholic, I've been an addict, I have recovered, how can they manage pain and and how can they manage if they go through a surgery dealing with the normal post-operative course of pain and how they can handle that without knowing this addictive potential, without having a problem with the medication. What sort of guidance have you given people in the past about that? In fact,
1: there's been a meeting with the patient, the surgeon, and the anesthesiologist. And if that person is also still under the care of a pain management specialist or recovery person they would be involved. But part of that patient-centered medical home is bring a team together. Bring them together to address it. Treat this person properly and not
0: send them back down that hole of addiction. Well, and I know that Cleveland Clinic actually has done some really good, interesting work on trying to figure out ways to use complementary or alternative practices to help people in pain. They've looked at acupuncture. They've looked at massage. They've looked at a variety of different things that, you know, you normally wouldn't expect a big medical center to say, we're going to have You know, an acupuncturist, come, or we're going to do yoga for your medical condition. You would not expect that in your hospital room. But they've actually pioneered some of the studies looking at these practices, trying to figure out what are the best ways to address pain for post-surgery in a way that doesn't have to require narcotic medication for those people who have a history of addiction. But then also you mentioned, and and I want to talk a little bit about this this concept of patient-centered medical home. Where you really do have the patient as the focus and you get surgeon, anesthesiologist, primary care provider all together, either physically in a meeting or electronically in the chart so that everybody's on the same page and understands what are the challenges. What are the expectations and what can we do to help this individual through this process? So when we come back, we're going to take a quick break, but when we come back, we're going to talk a little bit about that definition of patient-centered medical home, where it's happening right here on Oahu and where it's happening on the neighbor islands so that people can understand the concept because it really is putting the, driver, the patient in the driver's seat and putting a lot of responsibility on them to try and figure out, how can they negotiate and navigate their way around a new healthcare system? Because they've got a lot more power than they think they do. And to me, I think it's a great idea. So when we come right back, we will discuss that further. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here in the studio with Claire Santos. She is a nurse with over 35 years of experience, health communication and patient advocate. And if you want to join us, you can at 941-3689. Toll Free Neighbor Islands, 877 941 3689. We'll be right back. Stay with us.
4: On New Letters on the Air, George Saunders talks about the difficulties of writing short stories and how they sometimes take him in unexpected directions.
3: We tend to talk about art as if it's a very conscious, deliberate, intentional thing,
4: but my experience is that it's much more mysterious than that. Esteemed Story Prize winner George Saunders reads from 10th of December, next time on New Letters on the Air.
1: Tuesday evening at 6.30, following Marketplace.
3: Bob Dylan paid this tribute to Jimi Hendrix. He took some small songs of mine that nobody paid any attention to and brought them up into the outer limits of the stratosphere. Now it's Hawaii blues singer and guitarist Dion Boogie Scott singing Hendrix, singing Dylan. Check out this event in HBR's Atherton Studio Saturday, June 20th at 7.30 p.m.
4: Tickets at hawaiipublicradio.org or by calling 955-8821 during business hours.
0: Welcome back to The Body Show. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here in the studio with Claire Santos. She is a nurse with over 35 years of experience, health communicator, patient advocate. And right before the break, we were talking about this new concept, of something called a patient-centered medical home. Now, you've got a really good understanding of what this means, Explain it to me. My, my most basic explanation of patient-centered
1: medical home is that it's nursing. In the nursing care model, this patient has always been the center of the care. I believe in the medical model for many years, we had a much more paternalistic model where the physician was the center of the care. The physician made all the decisions and told the patient what they would do. That has now evolved to a collaborative arrangement where the physician and patient work together. And now the physician is in charge of bringing in the rest of the group, um, any consults that are needed, any additional services. The physician coordinates care um, with multiple specialties or whatever's needed. So it centers on the patient is the center of the
0: universe, congratulations, um, and communication. So, so what that generally means is if, if you come to see your doctor... And you say, I need, you know, I've got all these problems and here's what I think I need. And we decide, okay, so you need a back specialist. You may need, um, let's just pretend that you have some hormone thing. So you need somebody to help with that. And okay, you're being evicted. We need a social worker. Now, I'm not wishing these things on you, Claire. We're just (laughs) saying. Okay. So, So then from one office, you can actually get... Get people to contact you from an orthopedist if you need a back specialist, from a social worker, from an endocrinologist if you have a hormone imbalance. All of these people are all connected electronically through the same medical record or, or they can be virtually connected. They could be connected in sharing your record so that everybody can do what they need to to help you. So it really is a model where one stop shopping in a way. And you can get all of the things that hopefully you would need to stay healthy from one group. So you don't have to go see one doctor get an x-ray of your back. Then go see somebody else who says, I don't have that x-ray. Go do another x-ray. So now you've done two. Then you see somebody else who says, well, you really need an MRI. Now you've done three studies. And nobody's looked at all three of them. So it's, right. it's hopefully a way to make things easier for the individual.
1: It's easier for the person. It improves quality. And it, it's better on the budget as well. You're not repeating unnecessary tests. But this gives the patient one central person to talk to to help them make their informed
0: decisions. And it's kind of what we've been moving towards. I mean, I remember starting in medicine in the fairly paternalistic kind of attitude, and and things rapidly shifted. And now it's moved towards, and sometimes it's overwhelming for the individual, you know, you say to them, you have five options. Now you have to tell me within 10 seconds, which one of those five options, and here's all of your choices. And I can't tell you what to do because, you know, you're the boss now. So it can go in both directions. Yes. Where do you see it fitting in the best?
1: The collaboration is great between the physician and patient with the understanding that many times that patient is overwhelmed by all the new information. They may not be Healthcare literate, they may have English as a second language or maybe no English at all. So there are a lot of barriers to communication that have to be dealt with in the course of that patient centeredness. Um, What can happen is some places have patient navigators who would function to help the person coordinate things further with new services. There are advocates who come around. Uh, Often those are nurses, or the person can bring a friend or a family member to the appointment to help them understand what's going on. But to have them make a decision right away can be a pretty overwhelming task. And what can end up happening is they go home and talk to friends or go online and try to find their answers. So we still kind of have that internet thing lurking
0: in the background Mm -hmm. that that has to be brought into the picture and dealt with. Now, there are some places here on Oahu and on the neighbor islands that have adopted this patient-centered medical home. Yeah. I think where I work at Straub Clinic, they've been doing that. Next week, we're going to talk to some folks from Waikiki Health Center, um, or Waikiki Health, now they're known, and they have the patient-centered medical home. You've had some interactions with people on the big island. Right, Bay Clinic is level three. That's the top level of patient-centered medical home. So
1: rest assured, if you're going to Outer Island, the quality of your care is greatly improved in the last several years that... Bay Clinic, for one, is a top-notch healthcare facility now.
0: And it's good to know, because there they are in Hilo, and often there's there's not enough specialists or providers on some of the neighbor islands, but it's nice to know that there are some places where people can absolutely get help that are really looking to promote this level of services.
1: We have an excellent community health care system in Hawaii, in my opinion, and to learn, you know, again, of Bay Clinic's um, Tremendous effort that it took to achieve level three status, but that's their commitment to care, commitment to excellence for their
0: patients. Absolutely, I think Wyndham Comp has also looked at patient-centered medical home. Right, Kaiser has a lot of places are moving in this direction because it just makes sense. I mean, it's sort of what we all should have been doing optimally, and now we're just putting it in writing and saying now we're going to set criteria, and we're going to we're going to make people achieve a certain level to be able to say that you can't just say you're on the varsity team. You kind of have to be good enough to be on the varsity team.
1: Well, healthcare has just undergone so many tremendous changes in the, the years I've been in the business. And, you know, now that we're putting the onus on the patient and saying you're in charge, we need to accommodate that and, and help the person adjust. We're not sending them, as I said, to college to learn how to be a healthcare person. Um, so it's it's up to us in healthcare to help with
0: that transition. All right, we've got a couple of callers in the line. We've got Grace on the line from Kauai. Grace, welcome to The Body Show. Hi, and thank you. Um,
4: listening to your show and the man who had the knee, the cartilage in his knee caused pain, the yep. lack of cartilage in his knee for 12 y- years. Yep, that was John from Honolulu, yep. Okay, John. Um, I wonder if you ladies have heard of prolo therapy i'm
0: going to give you a note of that pro ro ro ro
4: Pro. No. prolo
0: prolo you're pro-lo educating therapy. me today
4: grace prolo okay okay i will make my comment now since you said no um there is uh, the practitioners are generally naturopathic and i believe prolotherapy originated in europe However, what it is is an injection into the joint that is missing cartilage. And whatever the injection is stimulates the body to grow new cartilage. Depending on how severe the damage is, it may take one to two to three to four injections before it's repaired. However, I have known um, a handful of people who have used it, and it has worked amazingly. It's actually affordable. I think the injections on Honolulu are um, hundred and fifty dollars an injection, but the the results are amazing and it works to have the body repair itself and then there's no need for pain medication.
0: Grace, you're awesome and it's so funny because here I am sitting here with Claire and she's like a healthcare advocate and she's all into patient education so she whips out her phone she looks up prolo therapy <laughs> and boom she's like Showing me all the information you're talking about as we're talking. So there's some great websites that people can go to if they want to hear more about it. You mentioned ProLo, P-R-O-L-O, and Claire looked up therapy and there you go. They're talking about some of the things that you're describing. So thanks for the education, Grace. I love well, to learn wanted, something one new. One more
4: comment is that I did the research as well and I found out that the only joint that doesn't respond to ProLo therapy is the hip. So with the hip replacement uh, needed, I don't think there's an option for prolotherapy. However, every other joint will respond to the injections.
0: Interesting. And you know what, Grace? There's something curious. The hip, they've actually done some some studies in the physical therapy area, and they found that Even with the hip, with physical therapy, it doesn't respond as well as like knees do or the back does or other parts of the body. So I suspect there's some other process going on in the hip and maybe as a weight-bearing joint of so much weight or so much movement, maybe there's a reason why it doesn't respond to standard physical therapy, or like you mentioned, even the prolotherapy. So another interesting way, alternative way to treat joint pain. So I hope John from Honolulu is still listening because Grace from Kauai is ready to help you and she's got some suggestions. Okay, we've got a couple more callers. We have Martha from Kaka'ako. Martha, welcome to The Body Show.
4: Hi. Um, I just thought I would mention what everybody knows, and that is that the insurance companies plays a big role in how much time a physician has to explain everything to his patient, depending on the procedure code that is going to be filed.
0: Oh, Martha, I'm a doctor. I know what you're talking about. They don't
4: really, not to say that the patient doesn't need to know, Sometimes you know, there's another factor there with the insurance companies on how much time a doctor has and how much how many other patients are sitting in the waiting room. I imagine that comes into play.
0: Well, Martha, you're right, it does. But the good news is that uh, that sometimes you can actually find some great resources. Or I've even taken to writing some of my own. You know, a good fifteen or twenty minutes put into what I would educate people about a certain medication or a certain condition can be printed out and given as a handout. And then I know it's in, right, in, in a way that people can understand because, you know, it would be exactly as if I was talking to you saying it. So you're right. Insurance plays a big role. And sometimes they don't give enough time for people to spend with their doctor. But there are ways to, to help with that. And optimally, everybody gets as much time as they need with their doctor. And realistically, if we can just find ways to help provide the information, so that patients can get it and yet not have to say the same thing 10 times but maybe print it out. That's another way that it sometimes works. And, Clara, that's another, you know, it's another option. It may not be optimal, but it's an option.
1: Yeah, sure. The other, another thing that patients do to get the information is start getting involved with online support groups. Absolutely, yeah. They have in-person support groups, and we have them here on Oahu, um, but there are the online support groups that um, people share their stories, share the tests they had, their results. It's, they get quite involved with each other and are quite supportive of each other through the process. But I say that there's a, another side to that sword where, you know, some people are into experimental treatments and things that aren't evidence-based. Um, so you, you need to be careful, again, At that point, I drive you back to your physician or nurse practitioner and say, I heard about this. What do you know? You need that second um, brain.
0: You do. But that's the whole idea of a collaboration, you know, is that if you do wind up on one of the online patient advocacy groups, if you have a rare condition and, you know, a lot of people unfortunately experience something that's not very common and they don't have that collegiality of other people in the same situation situation, close to home. So they do search for online groups that have similar conditions. You got to be careful. Some people, just because one person tried it doesn't mean it works. Just because two people tried it doesn't mean it works. But if there's enough interest in something that's worked, maybe this is something doctors would study. So you're right. There's a double-edged sword to that.
1: And I've, I've been following a lot of these online groups for several years. I got, to, when I was doing my master's in health communication, I followed We Go Health. um, Patients like me. Care, there's a lot of caregiver sites. I started to just watch what was going on and attend their tweet chats and things like this, and I realized there are a lot of desperate people out there. There are a lot of people who aren't getting the answers they feel they should have from traditional health care. Yeah. Exactly. And there's some anger towards physicians. But what happens is, persons in chronic pain, they're not. They're maybe addicted and still in chronic pain. They want to be cured. They want out of this situation. They get involved with all kinds, of myofascial pain, um, fibromyalgia, all kinds of support groups. Um, a friend of mine whose daughter just died unexpectedly was a pain patient, a chronic pain patient. She was on at least 20 different support groups online. Because as that desperation increases, as they don't get the diagnosis and the pain relief, they start looking to find their diagnosis themselves to go to myasthenia gravis and all kinds of things. It's a very, very vulnerable situation
0: and really talk with your provider absolutely. if you're in that desperate situation absolutely,
1: all right. and if that provider's not helping, you can go get another one, but be you know 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 when you're vulnerable because people are so desperate for answers, so desperate for cure, so desperate to be pain free. That someone else's
0: answer seems good to them. Sure, absolutely. It's a vulnerable population that yeah. could be taken advantage of. All right, we have time for one more quick caller. We have very patiently waiting Shari on the line from Kailua. Shari, welcome to the Body Show.
5: Hello, Doctor Kozak and um, Claire Santos. I'm, I'm glad you're taking my call. Um, I have a couple questions, but you know, if you can address what you can address. Um, how do? what is the best way of approaching clinicians to treat um, uh, acute chronic back pain as a biopsychosocial condition, needing uh, that type of intervention because it affects all aspects of a person's life. Yes. I am suffering from it, and it's hard to navigate. And the second part of the question is, how do you find the patient's navigator and advocate? H- how do you find that?
0: Good questions. You know, and Claire's already shaking her head like, yes, back pain does affect every area of your life. And you've been a patient advocate and navigator. So let's answer this part of Shari's question. You know, how do you, what do you do when back pain is affecting every area of your life? And how do you get a, a patient navigator? Or an advocate, because you are one. Because I am one. Um, you know, your health
1: care provider should be helping you and i'm very well aware you're in chronic pain
0: maybe you're grumpy you're you're
1: irritated
5: i am not grumpy at all i am very positive
0: oh well that's better than me shari because the one time i threw my back out i was a big grump (laughs) so i give you credit because i was a grump
5: i'm very frustrated i bet and i'm very sad also that it's actually happening to me
0: absolutely Absolutely. Because it's one of those things that, you know, I'll be honest, if a patient came to me today and said, how do I get a patient navigator? I'd be like, I don't know. Let me call our manager. Let me call social work. I'm not quite sure how to do that. So, you know, this is a really good question. I know that for some people who have a cancer diagnosis that the oncology departments are often having patient navigators and they're helping people to to deal with radiation and chemotherapy and oncologists and x rays and all sorts of things. But for something like back pain, I, I'm I'm at a loss. I'd be like, I don't know how to get one. But Claire, you are a patient advocate, so I'm curious, Shari, what sort of, what sort of things
5: did you want to be... Adv- what is
0: it you were looking for?
5: I can't get my doctors to treat me seriously. I can, I've been sent home um, because uh, just live with it, you're okay with the physical therapy. And, and I, I actually have a very um, serious back condition. And it, it's been going on for, I've been, I've been navigating the medical system for the past five months. And I still don't, my, the source of my pain is not actually been pinpointed in treatment. The treatment is nowhere near. It's, uh, it's so frustrating. Uh, nerve conduction tests that I needed because I'm having nerve pain, that doesn't go away in all my waking hours.
0: Well, Um, Shari, it certainly sounds like you've got a very complicated situation going on, and unfortunately, we've got about a minute and a half left. um, But certainly, it sounds like you've really had some difficulties for the last few months. And part of the problem might be what Sam, our first caller, identified, which is he looks really good. He doesn't look like he's in pain, and yet he has some serious medical issues. And I think That takes a huge toll, but there are some places out there. And Claire, you you were, you were jotting down, as you heard from Shari, Queen's pain management, that there are some places where people can get some help. And I think that's really the crux of this situation. You know, people need to know where to get help. And if they're having pain, how to contact and communicate that they're having this situation and have their doctors and their team of providers help take care of them as effective, as effectively as they can. We've got to have you back, Claire, because our time is almost up, and oh, yet no. I feel like there's so much more that we could do to talk more about this.
1: Well, thank you. And I would like to add just for you, there's uh, CASEL may have a pain management. Um, Hawaii Pacific Neuroscience may be able to help you. So those are three numbers you can call um, who might be able to best get you um coordinated and navigated and get your problem solved
0: all right claire we're gonna have to have you back because we've had such a great show today thanks for sharing your expertise you can find a podcast on hawaiipublicradio.org our engineer david chong our executive producer Bethan kozlovich we'll see you next week right here on the body show
3: mm-hmm.